0: Hello, this is Katherine Cunningham. Thank you for joining us for the Natural Intelligence Worldwide podcast. How can we live well within nature's planetary boundaries? Arguably, this is one of the most important questions for our world to answer today. The Global Footprint Network was founded over 30 years ago by Matthias Wagernagel, currently the president, to help individuals, communities, and countries calculate their global consumption of natural resources, According to Matthias, once we understand our global footprint and how we are extracting resources, then we can better budget and manage our resource use to ensure that we both live high-quality lives, but we don't overshoot our annual natural budget by more than one planet worth of resources. Let's listen to Matthias and learn how we can better adapt our lives to get to a sustainable world by innovation and design, and not disaster. I'm sitting yeah. here with yeah. Matthias wagner He is the founder of the Global Footprint Network. And we've just had quite a, an epic year this year with the Footprint Network because we've now moved our global overshoot date. It's the earliest 17. ever in human
1: history. 29th and of July.
0: Explain to us what that means. What is yeah. this overshoot? What are we talking about? we talk about going into a nature yeah. deficit for the rest of the year.
1: So we are ecological accountants. In very simple ways, you can account for money, we account for nature. And we do it by just adding up all the demands on nature, the physical demands on nature that compete for productive area, for food, for housing, for fiber, for absorbing CO2. So we can add it up and then compare that area needed to support us with how much is available on the planet. And so we come to the conclusion, using UN data sets, and that's probably very conservative that we use 1.75 Earth, or we use the regeneration of the planet 75% faster than the actual rate of renewal. And so we can translate that into also a date, because it's the same thing as to say that actually from the annual budget, the annual renewal that the planet provides us, we have used up after 209 days this year. And that's July 29th. We look at all the renewal of the planet and that's what we compare with our demand. I think more for political reasons, we use the United Nations data set because that's got the neutral body of data. It's not the most complete one, probably the maybe more precise one, but it's the one that is recognized around the world. And so we can vacuum clean a data set as empty as we can. So we use about 15,000 data points per country in the year, to calculate overall demand and then regeneration. And since the UN may not tell us about every type of consumption, the footprint may be an underestimate. The footprint is the amount that we take. And then the amount available, what's being regenerated, what we call biocapacity, may be Exaggerated because there are a number of aspects, like in the report mentioned today, the IPCC report on land, like soil erosion or water depletion, that may compromise the long-term productivity of the planet. So what we see as regeneration today may not be able to be maintained in the long run. So that means the biocapacity we calculate may be slightly exaggerated. We believe our estimate based on UN data sets is an underestimate of the ecological deficit that we run.
0: For, say fifteen thousand data points per country. Is that what I heard? Fifteen
1: thousand data points per country and year. That's what's available. A lot of them are trade data, so it's production data. Because in the end, what we measure is you can look at the world from a production side or a consumption side. For the world as a whole, it's the same thing. What is being produced? You know, is being produced to be consumed. But country by country, it can look very different. I'm from Switzerland, for example, originally. So we export Rolex watches and ideas and chocolate, and, <laughs> and the chocolate that actually. I mean it's first imp- cocoa is imported first and then we exported chocolate. So overall we export things that people seem to pay us for, uh, but it doesn't have that much resources embodied. But then we import grain and meat and fossil fuel, etc. So we import a lot more resources. So the consumption footprint in Switzerland is much larger than the production footprint. Yeah. So simply said, for example, Switzerland produces potatoes, so it's the potatoes we produce in Switzerland plus what we import in potatoes, minus what we export is the net consumption so we calculate the trade balance for every country as well for example switzerland if everybody lived like the swiss around the world then we can extrapolate that and say everybody in the world lived like the swiss it would take slightly over three planet earth if everybody lived like people in the united states it would take about five planets (gasps) luckily the quality of life is not totally related with resource demand there is some correlation but there's also it's quite a loose correlation and ultimately our commitment is not small footprint, our commitment is how can we have great lives? And the context is that we have one planet. That's the context. How can we have best lives possible on this one planet? And there are a number of factors that determine how much it takes to live. Like one factor is how many we are. If you double as many people, obviously, there's half as much planet per person. It's not so hard to calculate. There also, there's a lot of choice. So the population numbers, they move very, very slowly. So over the next 10 years, we don't see a big shift. But if you look, for example, at 2100, you know, the UN has that's this median projection. They say there might be 11.6 billion people on this planet. But we could also say, for example, worldwide, if we had reproduction rates as now, currently in Portugal, Italy or Spain, we would get to 4 billion people by the end of this century. And maybe that's far away, the end of the century. But I have met people that will be alive in 2100. You know, that's 81 years from now. (laughs) And people born today with current longevity have a good chance to actually live that year. This is not that far away. So so we could have 4 billion people or 11.6 or that's you, the higher projection goes up to 16 billion. So there's a big range of how much biocapacity could be available per person. There's still a strong belief that In some areas of society that larger populations are a good thing because it leads to more opportunities for economic activities and it requires a paradigm shift similar to the one we had in education. Education at one point, and there's still a few countries that think like that, they thought, wow, we cannot afford to send all kids to school and now most countries think the exact opposite. They say we cannot afford not to send them to school mm-hmm. and I think the same thing is true for sustainability, that we still think sustainability is a cost, we think sustainability is a noble thing. Noble sounds so noble, so everybody's in love with noble but noble actually is an indication that we don't want to do it. Noble means it's for Sunday afternoon and on Sunday mm-hmm. afternoon we're already booked, so actually it never happens you know. So how we can translate the idea of sustainability in something that's necessary, like brushing your teeth brushing your teeth is not noble for example if mm-hmm. I was the president of the world bank just for example mm-hmm. I would just put up a graph on the side of my wall you know because it's a very simple two-dimensional problem ultimately sustainable development has two words sustainable development so why development because we're committed to people's well-being we want to have great lives you know mm-hmm. that's what development suggests so many people need better lives why don't we just call it accelerated development why do we call it sustainable because we recognize we only have one planet. So how can we have great lives within the physical constraints that we have, which is this one planet? And then you can basically map these two axes against each other. You can say, okay, how well is people's development? And how much does it take to support people? So be, as a measure for well-being, there are many, but the UN uses one that is quite prominent, the Human Development Index. It says there are three key factors. One is particularly important, longevity. You know? mm-hmm. So people have long lives. That's an aggregate of many conditions to have long lives, including mental health and everything. Well-being, happiness, all lead to longer lives. Are people able to read and write and have access to basic education? That's important to participate in society. And the third level is to say, okay, do people have basic income? Because if not, it doesn't work. Anyhow, so they use these three dimensions saying income is important, education is income, longevity is important. They call that the human development index. And if it gets over zero point eight, then they say that's very high development. That's probably what you see in Europe and the Middle East, mm-hmm. the, in the Gulf states and in Canada and Japan, the United States, zero point eight It's kind of a high human development. And then the other question do we fit on a planet that we can use the ecological footprint how many planets earth would it take if everybody lives like you now one wouldn't be even the ideal goal like eo wilson his mm-hmm. latest idea is to say we should actually leave half, half the, the planet. planet for other species 85 percent of the current biodiversity would be able to survive he believes so then the goal would just be half a planet you know overall so anyhow we can make a graph we can make a dot for every person in the word for every city for every country on that map saying how much hdi do you have how much footprint do you have and we also know where we need to get we need to get into this square that is defined by higher than 0.8 hdi and less or far less than one planet worth of footprint that's where we need to get to on average and so as a world bank president i would say you know All our efforts have to help humanity get into that spot. So with every project we do, we have to ask ourselves, how much movement in this direction do we sponsor? If I had this map on the wall, I would parade all project leaders to the office and say, tell me please how your project is moving, your dot that you're working on, in which direction? Okay, take a week or two and and make the case and come back. And if they could come back and they can still not explain how they effectively move the dots they're working on into the right direction, I would say, thank you so much for your services. Maybe this is not the right place for you to work. And that's not what we only need to do at the World Bank. We would need to do for government spending. With every dollar of government spending, essentially, the challenge is quite simple. Basically, there are two criteria. One is, every project we do, we have to look at its financial return, because if it's not a net positive return, we will not be able to replicate it. So it's important to understand kind of financial viability to make something replicable. And then we also need to look at, is this project making us more resource secure? We are now at 1.75 planets. We need to get to one planet. We will get there whether we like it or not. The question is whether by design or disaster. So we'd better do it by design. That's our choice. That's why we call it one planet prosperity. Because the alternative is one planet misery. The one planet will not change. But it's whether we can do it as prosperity or as misery. Anyhow, so... So how do we get there? So basically we know how far we need to increase our resource security. We know how much budget we have. So we know with every dollar we spend, we need to gain at least X amount of resource security. So we can also benchmark all our projects against that and say, are they fast enough in producing resource security that we need? And if not, they are liable. There's no question whatsoever that we will be. We will be in a regenerative economy in the future. There's no question about that. The only question is how quickly. Mm -hmm. If we move slowly in the process, we will continue to liquidate more of our natural capital and there will be less regenerative budget available in the future. If we move more quickly, then more of it will be retained and we'll have more budget available in the future. But perhaps going more quickly is a bit harder. I don't know. So, But that's the choice. How quickly That's the only choice. How quickly do we want to move to a regenerative economy? People may associate kind of these lifestyle shifts with sacrifice, and they still may see that, even though they may have a better life, they don't see it that way at this point. But I think it's even simpler to say, if we moved Earth Overshoot Day five days into the future every year, we would be back to one planet before 2050. And for example, if we cut CO2 emissions by half, we would gain 93 days. That's more than three months. It's totally possible. And what does that mean? If you you think about infrastructure that's being built right now. So if you continue to build infrastructure today that depends on fossil fuel use, we build ourselves into a corner because we will have infrastructure in our city, for example, that will not work very well, that will be much less valuable in the future and it would be much less valuable probably at a time when the economy is weak as well. So we get hit doubly by having poor value at a time when we actually need value. So we hurt ourselves. So just saying, oh wow, let's not invest in things that will lose in value. So it's, it's not such a hard decision. So it's like telling people, don't cut off your arms. That's really a bad idea. It doesn't help you. know, It's, it's bad at that level. From my perspective, it's not a big wild demand. Oh my God, give up something. No, we're just saying, hey, why don't you think about yourself? Why don't you invest in things? that will have value in the future. Once I think we recognize that, it probably we'll be much more proactive. The strange thing about the sustainability debate is that it's so morally laden. And so immediately we jump onto people's individual case and say, are you doing the right thing? Compare the sustainability conversation with conversations about, let's say, financial deficits of the government. You know, If you discuss the deficit spending of the government, nobody says, now, what about you? How about your credit card? Have you ever had debt yourself? Have you always paid back your credit card? You haven't? Why do you talk about the national debt? We don't have this conversation, but actually resource exactly the same parallel. Like it's, it's, it's a fundamental requirement for economies to operate. So why can't we have a discussion and say, what actually do we need to do to be successful? Because what we do right now is we are undermining our own success. I think the biggest challenge we have is around narrative. Like how we talk about things. I was just like with Earth Overshoot data, where these journalists from Germany saying, oh, what do you think about now these discussions about taxing airplanes more because they're such polluters? And uh, while I agree in the end that I think airplane traffic needs to be more expensive, but the way we need to tell it, if we say we're going to tax it more, we just reinforce the misconception that sustainability is the expensive option. What we have to say is, let's not subsidize any more airplanes. Let's save money. Why should we give up our precious money to subsidize something that destroys us? Even though it's very close and intent, <laughs> it's a totally different narrative of kind of how people will hear it. And so the same thing is kind of buying offsets. Sounds noble, but in the end, what you indicate is to say it doesn't matter I can buy myself as the problem. I don't need to invest in myself to be secure. You indicate you don't believe that this destruction of the planet is a threat to yourself. That's what's so refreshing about the narrative of young people, like Greta Thunberg is now often quoted. Mm -hmm. But I think it's interesting that the way she communicates it's clear that she will be affected by it. I mean, everybody born after 1985 will be in the workforce by 2050. They will turn 65 in, in 2050. So within their work life, we have to get totally out of fossil fuel use. huge transformations about their life. And if we don't do that, they would have a very difficult life. So people in the age range of trades or even younger, I mean, for them clearly, it's a threat to their life. And they don't talk about wouldn't it be nice to be nice to others and wouldn't it be so much more mature of us to be kind of mature? They say, no, you're you're killing us. And that's why she says to people of my generation and older, she says, I don't expect anything from you because you haven't done anything. I'm I'm even surprised you listen to me because you should listen to scientists. Why do you listen to me? You're absurd. It's more the skin in the game. I think that people really feel, wow, this is about me. And I think that's Mm -hmm. what's missing of the generation from my age and older that I think deep down they feel more threatened by the therapy than the disease. You know, they Think what needs to be done is more painful than the risk of not doing anything. I was just in Europe, the cab drivers, we talked about climate change. They kind of repeat the idea, oh, yeah, it was hot, like it was hot already in Spain. Oh, Madrid is already hot, it will be as hot as Marrakech, you know, it's kind of six degrees warmer, and London will be like Barcelona. They could feel that already kind of in the heat of the summer, thinking, oh my god, it's hot already. And so that kind of speaks more to themselves. Maybe it's still kind of too abstract. What can I do about the world? That's kind of the silliest, the silliest, mathematically most silly response I get around the world is that people say, this word, yeah, this world is totally out of control. Like, we have, like the, what the Chinese consume and the Americans consume and the Europeans consume. It. And then they say, so what can I do as little Germany? What can I do as little Colombia? And that's so strange, because if you think you live on a planet, that's totally out of control. It's like sitting in a boat, seeing a storm come. And you say, what can I do? Let me wait for the others to fix their boats. Really? Why don't you fix your own boat? I mean, if you think you're living a world that's out of control, you can see that future. Why don't you prepare your country for that future, which means to make it resource secure to kind of reduce your dependence on fossil fuel to be able to operate you know to have the physical resources to support yourself part of the good news is that people are so incredibly innovative and creative and amazing in producing anything they want the question is are we setting the goals right or is the focus right and i think what's missing most is the human well to want to live within the means of one planet we think it's an option but actually if we don't want be forced to. so that's kind of the decisive point between design and disaster. We have enormous design capabilities. But we talk about the possibilities, how to close the gap between how much we use and how much we have. We use the hand because there are five fingers and there's like the thumb that's kind of represent the regeneration. So how much we have, we call it by capacity and through careful management we can make a lot of grounds that have lost fertility more fertile and reforestation is one possibility but also more careful grazing and all kinds of possibility better use of agricultural soils that you lose less soils there's lots of possibility how to make the bio capacity stronger. And there we have the other four fingers. And the four thing is the big opportunities is how do we operate and build our cities. So we have cities that are compact, that don't depend on that much car transportation, long distance transportation with efficient housing. Houses actually, that can be built in a way that they don't need to be cooled or heated much in most climates, it's possible. So we can build cities that are far more resource efficient and typically they're also much more livable. So the way we operate cities is a huge way because we don't live according to what people tell us we should do. We live according to how the infrastructure is shaped. If you bring a person, let's say, from Atlanta in the United States to Siena, where they can only walk, uh, you don't have to give them much instruction. They just live a totally different life because how the cities are shaped. Second one is how do we power ourselves. And so there are huge differences, and I mean, the drop in, in cost of renewable energy, particularly photovoltaics, but also wind energy, is dramatic and storage costs kind of are going down so how do we power ourselves Uh, the third one is how do we feed ourselves currently food occupies about half of the regenerative capacity of the planet and we still have a growing population we still have a population where many want to have more protein rich lives which typically means more of an animal based life (laughs) so there the way we feed ourselves from production all the way to consumption It's a big topic as well, and then the fourth one, which we touched earlier already a little bit, is number of people. We are double as many people. We only have half as much planet per person. So investing in the next generation and the opportunities next generation is like to help smaller families succeed. You know, to encourage smaller families and see the opportunity of having smaller families as huge short-term benefits in terms of social benefits if you have smaller families and smaller next generation you have more budget per person per per child for education and for health care and in the long run obviously the ecological benefits that this generation will have more biocapacity available per person so one of the most compassionate things to do is also to invest in smaller families and how can that be done and it's a number of aspects it starts with equal rights for everybody that women have equal rights to men also opportunities economic opportunities ways to participate, then access to family planning, obviously, and taking the taboos off family planning. So, so there's a, a lot of room for improving people's lives and opportunities. And at the same time, making us much more resource rich I think people need to recognize that they need to look after their own interests much more. Because if you wait for international collaboration, you wait forever and do nothing. We recognize that we have a risk at our hand. And so so, so I think in some ways to recognize the significance of being resource-secure in a world that gets more and more frail from a resource perspective, I think puts us all in, in the right direction. And interestingly enough, there's been a lot of pushback from countries with lots of resources and like for example Canada or Brazil to not have their assets be kind of taken by humanity and declared as a heritage piece of humanity. Because no, these are our resources. So I think in some ways to have this pride in your own resources and recognize, wow, this is our ticket to the future really makes a big difference. In South America Mm -hmm. there was this doctrine before still alive, unfortunately, it's called El derecho al desarrollo, the right to develop. And what it essentially means is that, say, okay, we have a lot of natural resources, let's liquidate them, and then we'll have money, and then we'll be like the Swiss. You know, that's kind of, I mean, I'm simplifying, but that's kind of a little bit the idea of kind of, yeah, first we destroy the environment, and then we'll be... High income. And when we talked with economists in Ecuador, I remember because we showed the graphs of how much, like they had about five times more Ecuador than than they used back in 1960, and by now they're close to an ecological deficit. So they're Mm -hmm. using as much as they have available in just about 50 years. And so when we showed that graph to them, they said, You must be against the right to develop said, absolutely not. Our main doctrine is we want people to have great lives, but there's only one planet. What you pursue is not the right to develop. You pursue the right to collapse. That that Mm -hmm. was for them. Oh, yeah, that's actually true. I mean, they had now in their their international plan this idea that not having an ecological deficit is a national priority. In Mm -hmm. Latin America, we start to use the terms el poder ecologico, the ecological power, because what we really want is to have, we want to have prosperity and peace. That's kind of what we want, you know. But what enables that, that. What's the ticket to success? We need to have the resources to make that happen. And South America holds a lot of cards in ecological power. They are the ecological powerhouse of the world. There's poder ecologico. So if they start to see that as their ticket to the long-term success, that turns things around Rather than liquidating their natural capital now where nobody pays anything for natural capital. Liquidating now is stupid in two ways. One is you don't get much today and B is the most important thing you will need in the future. So having this farm, how should I kind of position myself to be effective? Certainly not by liquidating your asset now. You know, that's kind of the the silliest way forward. Rather than saying the Amazon is a global patrimony. Brazil say, oh my God, no, don't touch my country. No, you have a big farm. And then I think for the Swiss... We don't have enough to say, wow, we want the Brazilians to protect their patrimony. We are willing to pay more for natural capital because that ensures that in the long run we will have the resource flow too that is needed. So so rather than trying to undercut all the prices, say, wow, we need to understand that we depend on these resources and, and we need to value our own resources much more as well. I think we have to start to recognize again that we belong to the planet. The planet doesn't belong to us. You know, we evolved as a product of our planet, our body is a reflection of the ocean we are just a bag Mm -hmm. of ocean walking on the land connecting to the land and to to ecological regeneration that's essential in some ways and I think to celebrate like the region where we are on it I mean that's our countries, our regions are diverse farms with forests and lakes and all kinds of things. And that's what gives us life. And that's what we can manage. If we have enough for us to live, then we can make any choices. The ultimate expression, perhaps, of freedom of self-expression is to have your resource security, because then you can have choices. So having your farm in order and looking after your farm and belonging to your land... That drowns you in, in all other possibilities and will also reduce all other conflicts because conflicts often do emerge from conflict over resources, not being able to have enough. It may be an oversimplistic a simplistic way. There are a number of, of course, drivers that shape our future, but we believe kind of the, the physical constraints overshoot is a big factor in many of the problems that we see from the urbanization pressure the uh, migration pressures, the conflict over different resources and conflicts in general, even as far as, I mean, it can go to pandemics, like higher population concentrations, more movement between these population centers leads to more vectors. So kind of just the sheer quantity of human dominance on this planet is becoming a threat to ourselves. and doesn't have to be. I think once we see that as a threat, because it can be turned around, we can do something about it, because ultimately, it's like Bill Clinton said, the economy is stupid, you know, it's, it's, it's ultimately, if we don't see our own skin in the game, if we don't see the economic necessity to move in the right direction, we are not mobilizing the necessary forces. But if we do see it, the creativity and the force and the capability is already sure. there. It's yeah. extraordinary, yeah. We measure everything in global hectares. It's the unit of measurement. These are kind of equally productive mm-hmm. hectares. You know, too. And so um, I told the former director of the Central Bank of Colombia, the former minister of agriculture and also an economist by training, I said, yeah, these global hectares, these are the ultimate currency. You know, It's mm-hmm. kind of the currency of the future. And he said, yeah, not only that, it's the only currency backed up by reality. And so I said, Wow.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, so (laughs) really. What a beautiful note to end on. Thank you, Captain. What
1: a great interview.
0: Thank you for listening to our Natural Intelligence Worldwide podcast. You can find us at naturalintelligence.com forward slash worldwide. Have a beautiful day.